Matthew chapter 27, if you'd turn to Matthew chapter 27 with me this morning. As we've been in recent months observing the Lord's Supper, we've been considering the sayings or the words of Christ on the cross. We're going to be in verse 46, Matthew 27, 46, a very well-known passage of Scripture. A while ago, I had the chance to travel to Philadelphia area uh, for somewhat of a pastor's fellowship. And when I traveled to that area, I, my flight got in. In order to get the best-priced flight, I caught a very early morning flight, and the fellowship didn't start till the afternoon or evening. And so I found myself in Philadelphia for part of the day. And I, have already, I had already previously been to Philadelphia, so I'd seen the Liberty Bell and those kinds of things. But I did some research, and I found something that I thought might be interesting to go visit. Um, it's one of the oldest prisons in America. It's kind of a ruins today. It's called Eastern State Penitentiary. Um, and it's on the outskirts of Philadelphia. So I went, and they have uh, tours of Eastern State Penitentiary that you can take, and you can go and see the ruins of the prison, and uh, they, they have, you can go see the cell that uh, um, Al Capone was in for a while. He kind of purposely got arrested in Philadelphia when the gang war was really bad in Chicago. Uh, that way he could spend a year in prison and be safer there rather than getting shot or something in Chicago. And, uh, but then they had pictures of like when he was there. There was all these other cells, but Al Capone had like a phonograph. For those of you who are younger, that's a record player. It sort of like plays music and stuff. Um, and he had, you know, all kinds of like a nice bed and everything else. It looked like an apartment or something. I guess he bribed it all in there or something. But the interesting thing is that it was built uh, very long ago in American history in the 1800s. And it was the first idea of having a place pretty much before that we didn't imprison people. Uh, you were either executed for a crime or you were giving a flogging or you're putting stocks or something like that. And uh, prison was really only to hold you until you had a trial. Uh, a jail was only to hold you until you got a trial. The idea of imprisoning people was uh, a new one with the idea that you could put them in prison for a certain amount of time and rehabilitate them so that they would go back into society and be useful. And it cut down on the amount of uh, executions and things that were carried out. But one of the things they came up with and it probably wasn't unique to then, it had been done earlier, but one of the things you could see in the prison was the place where they would put people in solitary confinement, okay, in the hole, and um, obviously not a nice place. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can experience pain, right? We can, we can have pain by, uh, you know, having something cause us physical pain. I was working on the uh, front end of my previous minivan one time, and I was trying to get um, a, a part off in the suspension, and I was torquing at it and working at it, and you know, I'd sprayed it with uh, stuff to loosen it up and all kinds of things, and I got a breaker bar on it, and I'm pushing, and the next thing I know, the breaker bar slips off, and I slammed my finger between the breaker bar and the brake rotor disc, and that didn't feel real good. And my finger swole up three times the size of what it's supposed to be and everything else. You can have that kind of pain, and that doesn't feel real good, okay? Or <clears throat> whatever kind of pain that is physical pain, and that doesn't feel real good. But you know, another way, why, why, would, why would a prison choose to put somebody in solitary confinement? They're not, they're not actively causing them physical pain, are they? I mean, it's a room. It's not a whole lot different than the other rooms that they might have been put in uh, to be incarcerated. But the point is, there's really very little uh, interaction with the outside world. Uh, you, you don't talk to anybody. You don't um, see anybody, really. You know, your food gets slid through a slot, and you don't see the person who gave it to you. You don't talk to them. You don't have any interaction with other people, but yet that's considered a greater punishment. Why? Because 
we're human beings made in God's image, and we're persons, and as persons, we like to interact with other persons. Um, in fact, they found in some parts of the world where, uh, where they have orphanages, that in those orphanages, that sometimes they're, they're over full, and that there's not enough workers to care for the children in the orphanages, and that if a baby is put in an orphanage and isn't regularly interacted with, if all they do is feed them and change them, and nobody coos to them or talks to them or holds them or those kinds of things, that their actual, their, their uh, mental development is slowed by that. And so there's this need as, as persons, as human beings, to interact with other people. Well, where do we get that? It's partially because we're made in the image of God, I would contend, and that God exists in three persons, right? There's been an eternal fellowship between the Father, Son, and Spirit, Even before there was anything, before God said, let there be light, there was Father, Son, and Spirit eternally fellowshipping with one another as persons. Okay, yes, there's one God. He exists with one nature in one nature, but yet he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we think about that, for all of eternity past, the Son had perfect fellowship with his Heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit. In eternity past... And so part of what takes place on the cross, as Christ hangs on that cross, isn't just physical pain. There is a rupture in the fellowship between the Father and the Son. Let's look at this saying of Christ on the cross in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now this is recorded in the other Gospels as Eloi, Eloi, instead of Eli, Eli. Eli, Eli is Hebrew. Um, We believe that Hebrew was a language in Jesus' day that was spoken in and around Jerusalem, and that in other parts of Israel they spoke Aramaic, which is a similar language, much like like, say, Italian and Spanish would be similar to each other. They, They have similar sounding words, but they're different languages. And so, and this is a quote, it's a direct quote from Psalm 22, if you'd turn to Psalm 22 with me. We read Psalm 22 at a previous Lord's Supper, so I thought it would be good this morning to read Psalm, I mean, Isaiah 52 and 53, but Psalm 22 is is the passage that's being quoted here. Verse 1, we have this superscription, to the chief musician upon... Ayalath, Shahar, a psalm of David. And then we see, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Now isn't this interesting that when Jesus speaks on the cross, one of the things he says is to quote Scripture, and he quotes the 22nd psalm, which is psalm of David. And we know in David's life there were times that he uh, saw some pretty hard times and was cut off from people, right? He might have been with his mighty men and those kinds of things and his faithful men. But the fact is there were times that King Saul, who was his father-in-law, was trying to kill him. There are times in, in Absalom's rebellion that close advisors had turned on him. And so David knew what it was to be abandoned. And David cries out. It felt to David as if God had forsaken him. And I think Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. That is, it's looking forward to Christ. And it's, it's about David's greater son, Jesus. But what we find is that the, the scripture that Jesus quotes here is this first verse of Psalm 22. 
Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have, you, why have you forsaken me? Why hast thou forsaken me? And so here Jesus hangs on the cross, having been crucified, and he quotes a piece of scripture. Now you'll find in some of the commentaries that uh, want to kind of reinterpret this phrase. Because if you read all of Psalm 22, you will find there are, there are vindication verses in Psalm 22. That the Lord comes to the rescue of the psalmist in Psalm 22. And some are saying that Jesus is just using shorthand here, and he's not really talking about God forsaking him, so much as he's talking about the fact that he's triumphing on the cross. I don't think that that's the meaning, because he could have quoted another verse from Psalm 22 if that's what he wanted. In other words, there's a reason that the text of Matthew includes what it includes. And it includes this quote from Psalm 22 because, one, Jesus said it on the cross. But Jesus said this on the cross because he's quoting Scripture because of something that's actually being fulfilled. In other words, to quote this this verse and then say, well, this is triumphalist, doesn't make a lot of sense in my mind because it, it just doesn't seem to fit. You could quote one of the triumphant verses from Scripture if you wanted to do that, but he doesn't do that. The point is, he's illustrating the fact that he is fulfilling this messianic psalm and that there is this this literal forsaking because of what he's doing on that cross. Let's talk a little bit about what what was going on. Many of you know the story. The second person of the triune Godhead, the Son, willingly took on our humanity. He came to this earth. He was born of the Virgin Mary, laid in a manger. We know this. The scriptures tell us this. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He never sinned. Unlike you and I. Every one of us in here, including myself, we are sinners. When I say that, I don't say that lightly. I say that saying, if I had to stand before God on my own merits, if I had to stand in heaven, in judgment before God, and say, God, look how good I've been, I would be condemned. Because I'm a sinner. And I cannot undo my sins. I cannot go back and take it back. I can't do enough good things to pay for the sins that I've done. And I'm a sinner. And because of that, the scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. The cost of sin is death. Death is separation. When we die physically, our soul is separated from our body. When, we, when someone is dead spiritually, they are spiritually separated from God. And the Bible talks about eternal death or the second death. And that has the idea of eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And what we find is that although every one of us is a sinner and deserving of just condemnation. Notice what I'm saying, just condemnation. Sometimes, and I find this has become very interesting among um, popular culture. There has been a theme over the last 10 years maybe in popular culture, especially in movies and things like that, to portray the idea that if someone is a more powerful being, they don't have a right to be a bully. And I've interpreted it, and I don't think it's accidental, I've interpreted it to mean that God doesn't get to be just. In other words, if God, just because God is God and more powerful than us doesn't mean he has the right to condemn us that that would be unjust for God to do. But the issue is, here's what I'm saying. I agree God is is not a cosmic bully. All right? In other words, the things God does are not right merely because he's more powerful than us. 
Okay, he is certainly more powerful than us, and he can do whatever he pleases. But the fact is, they're right because they're right, and come from his right and just and holy nature, not just because God is more powerful and said so. God doesn't bully us. That's not what we're saying, okay? He's not a cosmic gangster. I mentioned Al Capone in the introduction. All right, what happens if you cross a gangster like Al Capone? He gets revenge, right? He shows you that he's got power and he'll take care of you if, if, in a bad way if you don't do what he wants. God's not a cosmic gangster looking to knock off his rivals. He's a righteous and just judge. And there's a difference. In other words, if there's a war between gangsters... Recently, I don't know, there was a war going on, but recently I just saw in the news that just outside my neighborhood, just out the back of my neighborhood, there was a drugstore and I didn't know it. Not a Walgreens, I mean. All right? These people recently got arrested and they were charged with trafficking in cocaine and methamphetamines and selling oxycodone and heroin and crack cocaine. Literally, I, I, I read the news report on it and I'm like, they, that was a one-stop shop for a drugstore. Marijuana, they had everything. They were the Walmart of drugs, I guess. They had everything going on there, and, and uh, the, the, the man who was arrested had previously had felony convictions, and he also was caught with a firearm, which is against the law. So he has all these charges against him. All right, there had been, you know, three different police departments and SWAT teams and stuff there to come arrest these people. This man and his girlfriend, because they had a business going, a little bit of an uh, illegal one, but a business going out of their house on Old Highway 50. And, um, <clears throat> you know, when you get in that kind of a world, in drug trafficking and things, there are times that there's gangsters and they, you know, they get in shootouts with each other over drug turf and things like that, right? These kind of things go on. And if you cross them, they might get you. They might shoot you. They might kill you. They might intimidate you. That's not what we're saying. God is not like that. Okay, God is a righteous judge. In other words, if you go before a just judge in a courtroom and you've committed a crime or somebody else has committed a crime, what do you expect the judge to do? You expect the judge to pronounce a just sentence, right? If the person's done wrong, then you expect the judge to find them guilty and you expect the judge to give a sentence that fits whatever crime they committed. That's exactly how God is functioning. We have rebelled against the God of the universe. And we have marred all of creation because of our sin. Adam and Eve's rebellion, our first parents' rebellion in the garden, and our continued sin has made it so that this is a fallen world. It's not the way that it was originally intended. It's sin has messed up everything. It messes up our own lives and it messes up the lives of others. We're all sinners. And because of that, we find ourselves under just, righteous condemnation by a righteous judge, God. And so what hope do we have? I can't undo my sin. I can't do enough to pay for my sins. And I'm a sinner standing before a righteous judge. It's like this. I don't know if you, hopefully you haven't found yourself in this situation. I haven't in a long time, but I have on occasion been driving down the road and drive past a police car. And I look down at my speedometer. And I realize I am not driving the limit. I'm above it. And then you see that police car pull out. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. And the blue lights come on. And you think, certainly they're going after somebody else. And then they stay behind you for a minute or two. 
And then you realize, yes, they're after me. Hopefully most of you have not had this experience. You can tell by my description I've had it once or twice. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, I just have. And you pull over to the road, and the police officer comes up in the car, and he says, license and registration, and you give it to him, and he says, how, do you know how fast you were going? You know, he asks you these kinds of questions. But what goes through your mind when you look down at the speedometer, and it's a 40-mile-an-hour zone, and you're going 50? You know you broke the law. You know that the police officer knows you broke the law. You know, if you've ever had any experience in these kind of things, that you're not going to... You're not going to come up with an excuse that he's going to like. It's going to have to be a really good one. Okay? If you, whatever, they've heard all the harebrained excuses. My speedometer doesn't work or something like that. They're not going to believe you. Okay? And you know what's going to happen. They're going to give you a citation and you're going to have to go to court or you're going to have to pay it or whatever. It's not fun. Okay? It's not a good thing. All right? In other words, at that point, this is where we find ourselves right now, spiritually. We know we're sinners. We know that God knows what we did. We know that we're guilty. We know we don't have an excuse. So what hope do we have? Here's the hope that we have, and it's much greater than than a a moving violation, obviously. But here's the hope that we have. That is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. You and I couldn't pay for our sins, but the God-man took on our humanity. He lived a righteous life and he went to the cross. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see, he went to the cross and our sins were laid on him. Now how do you think God the Father is going to respond to Jesus bearing the sin of the world, being the sin offering? As Jesus took that sin upon himself on the cross... He knew that God's wrath was on him. And so therefore, for all of eternity, there was this perfect fellowship between God the Father and the Son. And now he's bearing the sins of the world, and there isn't that fellowship. Because he's the sin offering. He's bearing the guilt of the world. Think about that. Now, don't don't misunderstand me. Here's not what I'm saying. All right. It would be theologically incorrect to say that the Trinity was divided. That's not what happened. The Trinity didn't stop being the Trinity. Jesus didn't stop being the Son. Nothing like that happened. But that perfect, perfect, unblemished fellowship that they had was suspended temporarily because he was bearing sin. And so what does he do? He quotes this passage of Scripture, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now think about this. Have you ever had a situation in which you had a close friend who became angry at you? And that fellowship with that person was broken? You know, that's hard. In some cases, you'd almost rather somebody punch you. I mean, that can be a very, very hard thing. And so what we find here is that Jesus, in bearing our sins in his body on that tree, yes, he paid a great physical price to be nailed to that cross. He paid a great physical price to be nailed to a Roman cross and to die that gruesome death of crucifixion, of Roman crucifixion. But it wasn't just the physical death and pain 
It was the spiritual loss of fellowship with his heavenly father that was part of bearing our sins in his body on that tree. You see, God paid a great price by sending his son to be the savior of the world and Jesus paid a great price by dying on a cross and having this fellowship with his heavenly father interrupted because he was bearing sins. Here is one who knew no sin, but he became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And think about this, because he did this, now we're no longer alienated from God. That is, now we can have fellowship with God. We couldn't. We were alienated from God because we were sinners. And we couldn't have fellowship with God because we were sinners. And that sin had separated us from God. But the good news of the gospel is this. That Jesus died for us and because he took on our guilt and our sin and our alienation and because he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We can now be joint heirs with Christ and have fellowship with God. And so he bore our sins in his body on that tree. And I don't like to leave this here because we know every time that the apostles preach the gospel in the book of Acts, we find that they mention not only Jesus' death on the cross, but they mention the fact that he came out of the grave. See, he was sinless. So yes, he bore our sins, but sin, sin didn't have dominion over him. He conquered sin and death. He conquered death by coming out of that grave on that first day of the week. The wages of sin is death, but he had never sinned, so he conquered death and came out of the grave. And he ever lives and is now ascended to the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. So sin and death have been conquered. Now I want to say this. How do we receive this free gift of eternal life that's available in Jesus Christ? We receive it by faith. The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Or as Acts 20, verse 21 says that Paul preached, he tells the Ephesian elders that he preached, Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. By repentance, I don't mean penance. I've already tried to be clear that I can't turn over a new leaf or make my life better or or make myself acceptable before God, live a better life so God will accept me. I can't do that. My sin is my sin and it's, it's been done and it's guilt and it's there. But I've been loyal to self and sin and God calls me to turn from that selfishness, from that autonomy, from that desire to run my own life apart from God and calls me to the only hope I have is that is the Savior Jesus Christ. No man can serve two masters. I can't continue to serve the master of sin and serve Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that I become sinless or that somehow you know, I've changed my life so that God can accept me. What I'm saying is that God does a work in my soul and I come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then in so doing, I have a new allegiance. It's not to myself anymore. It's to Jesus. Amen. See, when my allegiance is to self and to sin, sin's my master. When my allegiance is to Jesus, he's my master. And the fact is that the Bible says that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. The yoke of sin is hard. And God calls us to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know everybody here today, and I know no one's heart. Maybe there's someone with us today who's never come in saving faith to Jesus Christ. I want to invite you today to come to faith in Christ. After this service is over, please find me. Or you can find Pastor Jed. He led our singing. Most of our church members could help you. We'd love to open the Word of God and show you from the Bible how you can know Christ. Whom to know is life eternal. 
Please don't leave today without getting some spiritual help. If you have any spiritual need, please find one of us. If you're a lady, we'll have a lady council with you. If it's a child, parents, we want you to come with your children and be involved in your children's spiritual lives, but we invite you to come. Please don't leave today without getting spiritual help. For the rest of us, who already know Christ as our Savior, this is a wonderful time for us to meditate on what Christ has done on a cross. We're about to take the Lord's Supper and observe the fact that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us on the cross. I want to say a few things. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 11, and I want to say a few things about the Lord's Supper. 